Welcome to the National University of Singapore Middle East Institute postdoc series, Boots of the Ground, Security in Transition from the Middle East and Beyond. In this series, we look at the future of warfare, which will see uniformed soldiers or boots on the ground being replaced by private military companies, autonomous weapon system, and cyber weapons. My name is Alessandro Arduino, and I will be your host for the series. Today, I'm very glad to have with us uh, Dr. Thor Buchfold, Senior Research Fellow at the Norwegian Defense Research Establishment. Dr. Buchwald has studied political developments in Russia and Ukraine since the mid-90s, especially in the areas of defense and security. He speaks Russian and Ukrainian and obtained his PhD from Norwegian University of Science and Technology. Buchwald was a visiting research fellow at the Naval Postgraduate School and in changing character of war program at the University of Oxford. I think that today we just start to talk about Russia private military and Ukraine just one hour of the invasion of Ukraine by Russian military forces of what Russia has just termed as a limited military intervention. But Thor, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Alessandro, for having me on your podcast. It's um... It's one of the most special days of my professional career with uh, what's happened just hours ago, but uh, I think we will still be able to make the podcast. Thank you again for, for being with us. And uh, we have been talking uh, at Boot of the Ground, our podcast about the Russian and Chinese private military sector for some time. Well, we had uh, Dr. Kandas Rondo, Dr. Sergei Shukhanin some time back, uh, and we all talked about the Wagner Group uh, in light of Syria happening. But considering now the ongoing anxiety over Ukraine, I, I really wonder if we can start our discussion but looking at the emergence of Russian private military company in what you define in your research as a new tool of clandestine warfare. The floor is yours. Thank you, thank you. Actually, right now it feels kind of strange to talk even about um, <clears throat> clandestine warfare when we have a full-scale invasion going on. But still, this is, I think, a topic that both you and I can agree will will be with us for, for many years, even if we have a full-blown war going on at the moment. So I, <clears throat> I want to approach your question by starting saying something about why Russia established PMCs in the first place, because this is... Um, Although Russia has a tradition of using proxy forces, they have not, do not have a long tradition of private military companies. Actually, it started mostly around 2010. And um, one reason why they established these companies was basically an imitation of the West. They saw that these companies are, or that's a, a blooming industry in the West. And I think especially what nagged them was that um, their own companies abroad started to employ Western private military companies for protection when they could have done so themselves. I mean, Russia has a lot of uh, ex-military going around. So <clears throat> that's one reason. Another reason, which we saw most of all in Syria, is that they needed ground forces uh, that are not part of the regular military for their foreign military adventures. So that's another reason why Russia established private military companies. But then we come to what you asked about a new tool of clandestine warfare. And here actually there is a quote from Vladimir Putin who said that about private military companies that this is a good idea because they could be an instrument for the realization of national interest where the state itself does not have to be involved. 
Now, what he meant by that was not that the state is not behind it, but that the state as such directly doesn't do it. So I think that was, um, <clears throat> that's why we chose the title nuclear, neutral or clandestine warfare, because Russia needed more capability in the, in terms of being able to use force and at the same time deny it. I mean, you can do this, of course, with special operations forces, but private military companies would even uh, would um, mean that the forces you use are even a little bit further from the state. So it's still more possible to say that they're not there and just do the clandestine thing or the warfare. So there is a Russian name actually for for these companies now they call them Ichtamnyeti, and that means those who are not there. So they have even uh, developed a special Russian name for the clandestine nature of these forces. I see that that's very important, as you mentioned, uh, uh, that now there is a full-blown warfare. Why we need still to talk about clandestine warfare? Why we need uh, still to talk about private military company? Because if we just move out uh, the look from Ukraine and uh, we shift to other area, and I'm looking from Ukraine to talk about the Middle East and Africa, all the discussion centered over Wagner Group uh, is still going on. And I believe that not only Wagner Group, but there is a vast assortment of Russian private military and security company beside Wagner. So can you list some of this company and describe their difference and similarities with Wagner Group? Sure, sure I can. It's, it's important that you bring this up because all, uh, since the Wagner Group has been the dominating, all these companies, obviously it's got the most attention, but uh, you're very right to point out that there, there's, there are many more companies. So um, when my colleague and I wrote the article, or uh, actually we written two articles on this, uh, we tried to categorize Russian private military companies in three groups. Uh, and we call them bottom-up commercial, bottom-up ideological, and top-down political slash commercial. So I'm just going to briefly talk about each group and then names of the, of the companies in each of the groups. So in terms of the bottom-up commercial companies, those are actually the first ones that were uh, established in the early 2010s, and some even before that, I think. And these modeled themselves very much on Western private military companies, and also had the same kind of uh, commercial outlook, and they, they didn't, I think, plan very much to take part in regular combat. They, they would do probably training, but a lot of uh, guard duties around, uh, they started actually in a, in a Russian city called Ariol. So there are a group of companies called the Ariol group of companies. But there are other ones as well, Moran Security. The most famous is probably the RSB group. Um, a new one uh, appeared in 2019 called Vega, which is uh, registered in Cyprus and seems to be a kind of mix Russian-Ukrainian PMC actually, or with personnel from from both companies. The, the latter one, as far as I know, only does training, but it has done training, for example, both in Africa and uh, yeah, especially in, in Africa. But the bottom-up commercial companies, the main point here is that they were meant to be commercial, not so much tools for Russian foreign policy. But then this is Russia, and you cannot just, I mean, uh, the deal in Russia, in the Russian, what's called the Russian mobilization state, is that 
you can establish a company, you can earn money, but if the state calls upon you to do something for the state, then you show up, otherwise you're out of business. So this means that, for example, RSP group, as far as we know, also took part in fighting in Ukraine. So even though these companies are the ones, the bottom-up commercial ones are the ones that look the most like the Western companies, because this is Russia, they will have to, uh, to um, fight for Russia whenever Russia asks for that. Then the second group is the bottom-up ideological companies. We don't have a lot here. There are two, as far as I, I have seen, one called Mar and one called Enot. And Mar is even questionable where it, whether it ever existed very much as a company. But the Enot company basically was a, a grouping of Russian far-right radicals and patriots that uh, they wanted to do something for Russia. And then they also got paid for it. So they, but they were not established from the top, they were established uh, bottom up. Still, um, because they, for example, they did fighting in Ukraine, they did fighting in Donbass. Uh, I think the Russian state found out we, we need to have some kind of control of this. So what we know from Russian sources is that the Enot group was also closely coordinating with uh, the GRU and probably at, uh, at times had GRU uh, advisors and uh, GRU uh, trainers in their group to, uh, to make sure that when Enot took part in action, that it actually did um, work according to what the Russian military wanted them to do. So that's the second group, uh, the bottom-up ideological ones. And Enot has been in, in huge, huge troubles lately, and it's basically closed down. So I think that this bottom-up ideological Thing is probably something that's going to go away. This is also in correspondence with Russian thinking in general, that the Russians are not too happy with the groups coming from the, a very ideological background because they are less easy to control than if you are in it more for the money. Then finally, the top-down political commercial group where Wagner is the most important, it also has a number of other companies. There's one called Patriot, which is said to be close to the MOD. There is one called SHIT or SHIELD, which is said to be consist mostly of personnel from the 45th Spetsnaz Brigade of the Airborne Forces. So all these top-down political companies are, well, some would call them basically mercenaries, because they are created by the state to do the state's business, and then to some extent they can do commercial um, things on the side. So for example, Wagner in this famous episode in Syria, in Deir al-Sur, they, Wagner in Syria would make mostly for fight as part of the Russian war effort, but then in, so to say, in their spare time, they also took on missions for the Syrian um, government. And uh, one of these missions was to, uh, to take control over a, um, uh, gas or oil uh, facility in Syria, in Deir al-Sur, where they um, entered into combat with, um, first with the Kurdish militia and then actually with the, the, Rus uh, with the US armed forces. Um, what we know about that episode, which is a very famous episode, is that uh, most likely the Russian general staff did not know about this mission. So I think that this, um, this Russian idea of having these top-down political uh, PMCs doing partly work for the Russian state and partly 
uh, do earning money on their own in the same theater operations is probably uh, that's diff that's uh, that's dangerous and they also they also show that so they may not do that more in the beginning but that i think is an overview both of the types of companies and of the name of the most important ones I see, as, as you mentioned, having a, a side job and the side gig involve uh, a kinetic action and ended up with more than 120 casualties when uh, the US Army annihilated in few hours uh, uh, that combat group. Uh, it's uh, still quite uh, a compelling issue, especially when uh, you point the finger that we are not talking about a mercenary group, as it happened uh, several times from the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. But now, especially with Ukraine, that the Russian year abroad is on fire. And I'm talking not only about uh, Donbass, but also uh, about Caucasus, uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, 44 days war, the recent crisis in Kazakhstan. But even if we look uh, at a place like Afghanistan. So basically, I'm looking to ask you the same question that I asked in a previous podcast to Sergei. Are we going to see Russian private military in the Moscow near abroad from Kabul to Yerevan or even Baku? So I would say both yes and no. I am, I would have to, if we start with Kabul, um, I'm not so sure we will see many of them there. Maybe we will, we, it's hard to know, but um, there is still a very strong Afghanistan syndrome in Russia. So getting involved militarily in Afghanistan, it's, it's not that, long since they since they were there last time and that was a disaster and uh, the russian people knows uh, remembers those times so i think they will be reluctant to use force there but i find it all it all i guess depends on how the taliban rule of afghanistan actually develops especially in in terms of foreign policy if they become a center or a a force of radicalization in central asia as such then Russia may still uh, get back to a point where they think they need to use force in that part of the world, and especially in Afghanistan and in Kabul. And then private military companies may uh, be part of that. All depends, of course, on what kind of missions they would uh, send them out to do. Now, the Russian private military companies, and you see this especially with Wagner, are seem to be relatively flexible in terms of what kind of operations they do. So <clears throat> it seems that at least when they fought in Donbass, they were more of an elite grouping doing special operation forces work to some extent. Then in Syria, because there was a need for much more uh, ground troops, then the, as far as we know, the, the re um, recruiting pattern of Wagner changed from the relatively high qualified previous uh, special operations forces personnel to more regular people who had um, had maybe just on regular military service or even no, no military service at all. So <clears throat> Russia can kind of formulate this or um, put together these PMCs depending on the operation and whether what kind of operation that will happen in Afghanistan if something happens, we, uh, we do not know, of course. But if we then move on from Afghanistan uh, and on to, uh, to other places in the post-Soviet space, then these companies will be uh, quite useful in a kind of non-attributional use of force or power way. 
And it's interesting, for example, then that when the Russian Duma discussed the legalization of the private military companies, and you should know that uh, Russian private military companies as such are not legal in Russia. There's no legislation um, on which their activities are based. So they function kind of on the border of uh, on the <laughs> yeah. So Russian private military companies are not legalized in Russia. They are so to say, existing on the on the margins of the law. And uh, this is for uh, on purpose, I think, because it makes it easy for the Russian state to control them. But the point is, uh, I want to make here in connection with your question is that there have been three attempts to legalize them in the Duma. And one argument for legalizing them was exactly this post-Soviet space um, mission. So uh, this legislator who, who argued for the legislation of the private military companies said that if there had been functioning and private military companies in Russia like Wagner at the time of the uh, revolution in Ukraine, uh, the first one, the Orange Revolution in 2004, then we could use these companies kind of renting them out to our friends in the near abroad so that they can use these companies to put down popular uh, rebellions. And that, that may still happen. I mean, there are still many countries uh, as we recently saw in, uh, in Kazakhstan where um, there is a, uh, a government that is autocratic and where you occasionally will have popular uprisings against it. And for that, purpose, these companies would probably fit the Russian, um, yeah, the, the Russian authorities well. So as a kind of renting out institution to, to dictators that want to keep their populations in place, you might say. Yes, definitely. I mean, when, uh, when we mention uh, this uh, spread of different private uh, military company, uh, in my opinion, considering that you are a specialist on Russia defense and you speak Russian, uh, in terms of Russian academic discourse on its own private military company, how do you think that the Russian academia perceive uh, its own PMC and the overall private security sector? We already know very well that from a journalistic point of view, reporting on Wagner and the Russian PMC is quite, let's say, unhealthy. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember some comment about um, from Minister Lavrov when he was talking about the Wagner gate, the recent report from, uh, from Bellingcat, uh, and he made some joke about Heliot Higgins. But when uh, the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs can make joke, uh, uh, Russian security is uh, deadly serious. So looking at the role of Russian PNC that has been even officialized in, in Mali, what do you think that uh, how the Russian academic discourse is looking at Russian private military companies? Yes, thank you. It's, it's, a, it's an important question, a good question. So I'm gonna divide my answer into two. I'll first talk about the issue of sources and then I'll talk about the more of the, the academic study of private military companies in Russia. So in terms of sources, it's uh, it's true, as you said, that uh, Lavrov kind of suddenly uh, referred to a private military company, although they are still 
as I said, illegal in, in Russia, he still uh, just kind of casually referred to it as, yeah, that's nothing to do with us. That's the one of our private military companies. One might think that this would open up the possibility that it, it wouldn't be as dangerous as it has been to, um, to investigate these companies. But I don't think that's the going to change very much what he said about uh, the PMCs and Mali. I think that um, studying or fire for journalists finding out about Russian private military companies is going to continue to be as dangerous as it has been as and you probably know and, and maybe also some of the listeners know that Russian uh, journalists have been killed in action, so to say, because uh, of studying these companies that had uh, uh, happened, especially in the Central African Republic. So I think we're gonna, we have to live with a lack of data on this for a very long time. Uh, there are a lot of um, uh, courageous journalists in Russia that will try to still to, uh, to investigate the phenomena, but uh, it will be very, still very dangerous for them, I think. Now, there is another kind of opening in that, as we know, that Russia has mostly used these companies in uh, in developing world and, well, basically abroad. And this means that once you send your forces abroad, they expose themselves to the scrutiny of the um, journalists also of other countries. So there are no quite a lot of reports from Africa in particular, but also from other places in, in local sources in Africa or in dif uh, different Western sources, because once the, the troops are there, they, they will to some extent uh, expose themselves and we can learn from them actually through other sources than, than the Russian sources. So that's... Um, that's kind of the, the cost for Russia in terms of using these companies. If we change then to the, um, go from the sources to the international academia, I would have to say that in terms of the Russian academia, it's not very active in terms of analyzing their own private military companies. You will find um, journal articles, mostly journal articles. I don't think there is even one book yet in, in Russian about this, but uh, there will be journal articles. But again, this being the Russian uh, academia, they will have to be careful about what they write, about what they say. So my impression from reading the Russian academic sources on private military companies is they they tend to focus very narrowly on the legal aspects of this. So they don't really discuss uh, the political purposes or the way the companies fight or the, or the um, corruption that is uh, inevitably connected with this. They focus very much on the, on the legal aspects because that's safe ground, you may say. Then if we move from, from Russian academia on, in the study of private military companies to the international academia, I would say that there is a rapidly expanding literature on this. So, to some extent, despite the, the lack, or not lack, but uh, limited uh, amount of empirical material to study, there is nevertheless a rapidly expanding literature, basically because I think people around the world, and especially in the West, uh, have found that this is, this is very important. We need to know something about this. Um, though I have to say, I think that literature mostly stays within the area studies uh, realm. So I haven't seen very many uh, 
what could we say more theoretically or um, oriented uh, articles on Russian private military companies. In fact, I, uh, I gave a presentation on this topic a few years ago at an international conference where the, the panel was on private military companies in as such. And I, I have never felt more out of place in any panel than at that panel because uh, the academic, the general academic study of private military companies seems to have basically um, limited itself to Western private military companies. And since there is no, not, not, not that much happening in this area, that whole academic discourse seemed to have gone off in a very theoretical uh, direction. So I was giving a very kind of on the ground presentation, whereas most of the other presentations were, I mean, they were, they were good, they were logical, but they were in a completely different field. They were highly theoretical. And uh, I basically couldn't see any connect between my own research and, and that research at that particular panel, at least. I, I agree with you. And uh, looking uh, from academia perspective in the West, uh, the name of researcher, serious researcher on Russian PMC are quite limited. And I'm very glad to have you with us as we can complete the circle with uh, other few other that has been already in our podcast. Uh, having said that, it's quite uh, compelling and interesting at the same time, the fact that in Russia, there is no ample discourse uh, on the own development of private military in the academia, while, for example, in China, where I'm looking most of my time looking at private security, not at private military, since 2009, there is a, a great increase in discussion that is not only related to the legal aspect. It was quite similar from the 90s to 2010, was just related to the law, but now is the direction and the privatization of the state monopoly of violence, of course, with Chinese characteristic. But also I see that there are part of the war where the model that in some way has been started, kickstarted by Blackwater in Iraq and then in Afghanistan has been taking its own shape. And I'm referring to Turkey, where we are seeing now the development of a new private military company. And in your opinion, especially now that there is the increasing friction between China and the United States and Chinese private security are looking at different angle, uh, there is going to be an overlapping of interest from Moscow, Beijing, and even Ankara in uh, uh, private military and security cooperation. And I'm saying that because among the company that you mentioned before in your top-down analysis, Moran, one of these, I met with some manager of the company in uh, Kunmin, if I recall correct, a few years ago uh, during a, a Chinese private security conference. So do you still think that there is a possibility of cooperation between the three? One would think so, especially with Beijing. I, of course, I have to say that I'm no specialist neither on China nor, nor on Turkey. But um, I mean, relations with Beijing are the closest they have been in, in, uh, in many, many, many years. And Russia and China is even cooperating in terms of nuclear weapons at the moment. So if they can do it in terms of nuclear weapons, why couldn't they do it in terms of PMCs? So maybe we will see something of that. Although I have to say again, I'm a little bit skeptical. First, and you may correct me if I'm wrong here, but my impression is that the Chinese private military companies and the Russian ones currently do their relatively different work. It seems to me that Chinese private military companies are very concerned about 
or very engaged in the protection of Chinese uh, investments abroad, basically. Whereas the Russian ones, although they do some of that as well, as we know from, from Syria, from Africa and other places, are much more in a, in a combat role and not only protecting Russian interests. So if they, if they kind of fork away from each other in, in that respect, that may, that may prevent cooperation. Um, and then another thing I think is that um, although China is very much on Russia's side, I still think China is afraid of being getting tied up in Russian military adventures that China do not think was uh, does not think was a good idea. So it's kind of uh, it, it is my impression, and you may correct me here, that at least some in China see Russia a little bit as a loose cannon on the deck and especially probably now with what they started just last night and that the Chinese may be um, reluctant to tie themselves to the uh, too closely to this loose cannon on the deck. Uh, and finally on, on, on China, it's uh, if you look at Africa in particular, Russia and China may still be in some kind of a, uh, of a competition in terms of influence uh, in that continent and in that that would also speak against uh, cooperation on private military companies. So I'm not ruling it out, but I see some obstacles at least. If we move on to, to Ankara and Erdogan, relations are troubled. They are good in some respects and, and problematic in others. And I think both um, Putin and Erdogan, they are to some extent similar politicians. So they find each other on a kind of a on, how, on the level of how politics should be done, but they keep ending up on the different sides of the different conflicts. So they are on different sides in Syria, different sides in Libya. They were on different sides in the war in, in Nagorno-Karabakh. We don't know about Ukraine yet, um, but I saw just this morning that Turkey has uh, um, assembled its Security Council to discuss what Russia has just started in Ukraine. So uh, we will see. I, I mean, the kind of the conclusion to uh, to what I've said here is that uh, I don't um, rule out the, the possibility for more of that cooperation, but I see some strong uh, obstacles against it. Or thank you very much for your time, especially now that I know that you're extremely busy. I want to go on to abuse of your time for hours, but uh, we are back to the last question. Uh, and uh, uh, it's a quite sad one, uh, because I was going to ask you if we are going to have a war in Ukraine tomorrow. I mean, I don't need to, to ask you about this. Let me go back to your uh, last question. I, I totally agree with two things that you mentioned about China and Russia. First, Chinese are private security, not private military, and they are banned in protecting the Belt and Road. Uh, so that's the difference. They are not the tip of the spear, as it happened with Wagner, for example. On the other side, yes, President Xi and President Putin mentioned at uh, the Olympic uh, a new era of international relation. But then again, China strive on stability, on preserving the status quo, while Russia uh, thrive on chaos, on manageable chaos, as we are witnessing uh, right now. Having said that, I'm asking you the one million dollar question that I'm asking to all our guests, that is how the evolution of Russian private military is going to look 
in the next 30 years. And especially, uh, I'm very intrigued to your forecast and your knowledge about the Russian Special Operation Forces uh, and the fact that they are an important part uh, in the contemporary and the future of private military companies. Yes, thank you. So I I had a question ready for you. I mean, I was uh, preparing for this podcast. I had a question ready for you. Now I don't know how relevant this was. No, it's still going to be relevant. But um, the outcome of what Putin just started this night is going to be relevant for this as well. If in the end, and this is, I think this is a possibility, uh, Putin's regime might fall on what he just started, then that's going to be ha have a huge impact also on um, on how private military companies in Russia develop over the next, next 30 years. But let's say that's not happening. Let's say that the world we have um, been living in since uh, until now is going to continue for the next 30 years. Then I think, definitely think that private military companies will continue to be important for Russia. And kind of the big question here is that will Russia in a new world with ex even more extreme uh, problems uh, in the relations with the West, will they switch their private military companies from only doing work in the developing world to also start doing work in the West or towards Western countries? Because I don't think that's out of the question anymore. And that's uh, for us, at least in the West, that's of course a, a very dangerous development. And if that happens, I think as you alluded to, that it will be very much in connection with Russian special operations forces. You know, it, when they started uh, developing the private military companies, that was also based on an idea that had been uh, floating around in the Russian military for some time that the Russian, the Russian special operations forces needed some kind of um, old boys teams, so to say. I mean, people who had this experience should be able to use it also after they re left regular uh, service. Uh, so therefore, the, as you <clears throat> probably know, the, the Wagner Group and also the other ones that I mentioned that are um, top down, um, they are very close related to the Russian Special Operations Forces already today. That's going to continue. Then it depends on how Russia is going to use, as I said before, how is Russia is going to use private military companies in the future. If they're going to use them for ground combat or guard duties, they don't, these, those kind of forces do not require Special Operations Forces training. So that will move to some extent, the countries away from special operations forces, I think, because special operations forces are very expensive uh, per uh, per individual. Uh, so you don't you don't need the, the that kind of highly trained personnel for those kind of roles. But if um, but if Russia uses continues to use uh, private military companies in this clandestine warfare role. And then not only in the developing world, but also potentially against Western countries, then I think the integration with the Special Operations Forces community will be even higher in Russia. And um, already today, I think we can say that it's kind of a symbiosis between the Special Operations Forces and the private military companies. So we may, for example, in the future see that 
uh, if Russia wants to do something somewhere uh, with a little use of force, they can send their regular special operations forces, but just claim that they are private military companies. So it's really, it, in this scenario, it's going to be increasingly different, uh, difficult, I think, to differentiate between private military companies and special operations forces. Or again, thank you very much for being with us and for your time. I'm sure today you are going to have a very, very long working day. And in the meantime, I want to thank the audience for being with us and to get ready for the next podcast that will be about the evolution of the Chinese private security companies in protecting the Belt and Road Initiative, so-called walking on a thin ice. Thank you very much. <laughs>